Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael Kimlin. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Kimlin. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for the invitation. It's really wonderful to have you here. I've been excited all week waiting to talk with you. Um, I'll just preface our conversation, which we're going to be focusing around um, UVB, light, vitamin D, and the sun. I just want to preface this conversation by firstly giving our listeners a little bit of background on your experience because you're wonderfully qualified in this area and I think it's a fantastic opportunity for uh, our listeners to get access to such uh, you know, a highly qualified person like yourself and, and to hear their perspective on this. So you're a cancer epidemiologist. You've got over 206 peer-reviewed scientific publications. You're currently the adjunct professor at the School of Biomedical Science at QUT, and you've held positions at a range of other universities, including the University of the Sunshine Coast, and you've also done a lot of work with the Cancer Council. So does that sound about right? Have I missed anything important off there? Oh, look, you know, I think I've I've been blessed with a with a wonderfully varied career um, in in many fine institutions around Australia, both in the, the non for profit sector and the university sector. Um, and I've also worked overseas uh, in, in the US for a number of years, which was a a, a story that I, I guess we might might even cover today at some stage. Hopefully we can get around to that, but there are so many topics that I actually want to um, talk to you about. I guess the first one that really comes to my mind is the work that you've done around uh, sun exposure and obviously cancer. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot of people talking about the fact that the sun is really dangerous. We should be scared of the sun, stay out of the sun mm-hmm. because it's going to increase your risk of skin damage and Sun cancer. Now, how true are those statements? Is is it blown out of proportion, or do we really need to be cautious? Look, uh, <clears throat> the sun is is graded by the the World Health Organization uh, as a grade one carcinogen, which means the evidence is overwhelming from decades and decades of research and, and study to show that that sunlight, specifically ultraviolet radiation, which is a part of the, the, the light that we can't see, but it affects our skin, uh, is actually a carcinogen. So it is a grade one carcinogen and it does cause cancers of the skin and also uh, damage to other soft tissues such as the eyes. So, you know, it, it is an unrefutable fact that, that sun does cause uh, skin cancers and eye damage. And when we're talking about the damage that the sun does to our bodies, is that something that would happen in a relatively short amount of time? Is this something that happens over years? Um, how do we how do we evaluate that that yeah, state? Well, it, it's it's a it, it's quite a, a complex um, disease because most uh, cancers of the skin and most eye damage don't occur in, in young people. They really do start to appear in people in uh, young to middle age, uh, younger middle age to middle age people, uh, and uh, it, it's through an accumulation of dose. So. If a person goes to the beach and gets a sunburn, let's hope that doesn't happen anymore, but let's assume that it does, and gets a sunburn, they're not going to develop a cancer of the skin the next day or the next week. But what that has done is imprinted within that particular person. The the risk has ratcheted up. It's, It's ramped up compared to, to someone who hasn't had that sunburn. So what when we talk about the risk of cancer in the skin uh, of, of, of people due to sunlight exposure, we're really talking about a lifetime accumulation of exposure. 
Now, that, that being said, there, there are some cases that, that um, are, are genetically based, and in, in, in particular, there are rare cases of melanoma in very, very young children, which is melanoma is a, is a cancer of the melanocytes, the, the, the cells that cause pigment within the skin. And it is the most deadly form of, of all the skin cancers. Some young children do actually develop melanoma. It's very, very rare, but it does happen. And that that tends to be genetically driven rather than exposure driven. Yet when we look at, at melanomas and other skin cancers uh, in, in patients, um, um, particularly here in Australia, um, signature UV mutations are found within those tumours that really do indicate that, that sunlight is involved and also lifetime dose. So generally those people who spend a greater time outdoors tend to have a higher risk of those cancers than others. Okay, so what you're saying is that if you have a very great exposure multiple times across your lifespan and you get badly burnt, your risk increases. That's right. And and I think, you know, it, it's there's a few factors at play there. Um, first of all, um, yes, it's the, the higher the cumulative dose, the higher the risk over, over a lifetime. But also it's it's the type and style of exposure. If we compare someone who's, who, let's say, works outdoors, who's chronically exposed to sunlight, compared with someone who work indoors who might only be exposed to sunlight on the weekends, they have a very different lifetime exposure profile, but it also gives rise to risk of different types, subtypes of, of skin cancer. But generally speaking, and the good rule of thumb is, the higher the lifetime exposure, the greater the risk of skin cancers. So that begs the question then, how do we get the Australian population to get a sensible dose of UV, UVB light? And what is that sensible dose? So I, I guess um, kind of uh, your question is, is, is kind of bringing in the topic of vitamin D is that, is that is, you know, if, we, if, we, if we're starting to talk about sensible sun exposure, if, we, if we're talking about from a, a skin cancer prevention perspective, Yes. The, the Cancer Council has got very, very clear messages that we've given to the Australian population since the early 1980s. The protect your, protect your skin in five ways, uh, the Slip Slop Slap campaign, all of these have been extraordinarily um, successful in raising not only people's um, um, use of and implementation of of some protections such as hats and sunscreens and protective clothing and shade where possible. But importantly, our Australian population is the most educated in the world with understanding the risks of skin cancer to themselves. So we, we, we've done a terrific job. So the message around sensible sun exposure, I guess, revolves around we live in a beautiful part of the world with a beautiful climate and an outdoor lifestyle is part of what makes Australians Australians and uniquely Australians. I think what we've done really well is promote the, the fact that our sun is harsh and that the sun exposure over time causes skin cancer. And um, when people do go outdoors, generally speaking, people are aware of the risks and they do take protection measures when they can. Obviously, this is not blanket across the population, but I think in general, Australians need to be applauded with their, their wonderful approach to, to sun safety and the way that they implement it uh, on a regular basis. So it's been a very successful public health campaign. I think the challenges arise now with how do we maintain this after... Um, almost 30, 40 years of, of this health promotion message. How do we keep it fresh and, and current with all of this information that, that's being uh, spread around so quickly um, uh, regarding everything from weather to news to, to, to everything? How do we keep the messages current that people can keep safe and enjoy the sun? 
that that's I think the challenge moving forward. Hmm. Yeah, it's not an easy task. Uh, that's for sure. In regards to the sun uh, exposure that we get, is limiting that in line with the public health guidelines associated with uh, varying degrees of uh, vitamin D levels? So if we spend too little time in the sun, is it going to negatively impact our vitamin D levels significantly? And if we spend sufficient amount of time, is that actually going to maintain our vitamin D levels in a optimal level? Mm. And and I think, you know, this th- this whole vitamin D um, skin cancer conundrum, this this competing messaging is something that has, has really um, driven a large part of my career and understanding how and whether there is a balance between the two has been a fundamental telnet of, of what I've been interested in in, in my work. So um, stepping back, you know, pro, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, the, the message was all about sun protection. Vitamin D, although had it, it had been known for many, many years, and in fact, uh, vitamin D first came to prominence and sun exposure first came to prominence during the Industrial Revolution in the UK, where there were many, many children that were developing rickets. And rickets is a... Is a um, is a, a disease where the bones, in particular the femur um, and, and um, bones of, of the, the feet and, and lower limbs as well, actually become soft because calcium is not absorbed into the bone because of lack of vitamin D. Now, these children that, that lived in the UK during the Industrial Revolution were living in heavily polluted cities where the, the sun was obscured from the sky. They were living in, in a northern location in, in England. And so they, they moved from countryside locations into these heavily polluted cities uh, with low sun exposure because they were living in, in crowded conditions in shady streets. And these children were getting vitamin D deficiency. And, and what was found by the physicians at the time, if they could actually expose these children to mercury lamps. Now, these these are special uh, lights uh, that uh, produce UV and they're extraordinarily dangerous, but they produce UV. And if they expose these children to this, this UV light, the rickets was cured, um, was the term that was used. So we, we've known about the relationship between UV and vitamin D for a number of years. We've known about the relationship between UV and skin cancer um, for a number of years as well. We, we knew that it was a function of where you lived and, and what sort of occupation that you've had. There was a relationship between the two. I guess where the vitamin D world and the skin cancer world started to, to, to meld together was perhaps in, in the, the mid to late 90s and the early 2000s where, where questions were being asked about um, why are we finding people within the community with vitamin D deficiency? And, and there was some really great work done around that time where, where, where people within sunny Australia with our high melanoma and other skin cancer rates we were finding vitamin D deficiency. Now, there's some questions around why it happened then. Well, well essentially it was because there was a, 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 to, a, a to market uh, pathology tests that was available and that was relatively inexpensive. So that um, prior to that, it was very difficult to take the measurements. Now we had a reliable measure that could be done. <clears throat> and this conundrum was found where people were, were vitamin D deficient in this sun-drenched country of Australia with this high skin cancer density in the population. So <clears throat> The field has really evolved since then to try to figure out and what is the relationship between sun exposure and skin cancer risk and sun exposure and vitamin D for primarily bone health. But, you know, we can talk a little bit later. There's some other diseases that could be associated with vitamin D as well, and they're cause for, for, for much research that's going on at the moment. Um, however, this whole relationship is, is quite complex and, and I'm not sure whether we've quite got the answer yet. We do know that that um, 
when when our skin is exposed to UV to sunlight, the skin is extraordinarily efficient at making vitamin D. So those people living in Australia um, who have sun exposure, even just walking to the bus or going to the shops or checking the mail or hanging out the washing, those sorts of activities tend to give enough exposure to actually produce ample vitamin D. The body is is fantastic because it's got a self-regulatory measure within the skin and also within within the liver to actually rem- keep the optimum levels of, of vitamin D going. And you can't actually overexpose to sunlight to, to make too much vitamin D. At the same point, it's really important for your listeners to, to understand that we're not talking hours in the sun that you need to spend each day or even on the weekend to make vitamin D. This is seconds and minutes of, of exposure. Um, and, and a really interesting finding that we, we found from our work is that people who actually wore sunscreen, where sunscreen has previously been thought to be quite negative with, with um, the production of vitamin D because it protects your skin from ultraviolet light. We found that that those people who wore sunscreen regularly consistently had the highest levels of vitamin D in our studies. And that's probably because they're spending time outdoors. So there's a whole lot of things to unpack in what I've said there, but there, there seems to be this conundrum with sun exposure and vitamin D. We're not quite on top of it yet. However, I can really um, you know, say, say quite certainly that we're not talking of hours of exposure. We're talking about seconds and minutes. So you know, it, I, I actually shudder when I hear people saying that they're sunbaking to get their vitamin D. Well, yes, <laughs> that's, that's a personal choice. But after the, the skin has produced the, the pre-hormone vitamin D from 70-hydrocholesterol called uh, uh, calcitriol, when it makes it in the skin, if if there's actually enough there, it won't produce any more. So you're actually just increasing your risk of melanoma if you if you continue to sunbake for vitamin D. So um, there's a lot of issues that I think we need to address, and and unfortunately the science we're still catching up with the public health messaging. But I think at the moment um, most people can safely say that a few minutes in the sun is all you need. You were mentioning before about the testing and that there was this large group of Australian uh, people who had vitamin D deficiency despite us living in the sunniest country in the world. So is that a fault of the test or do we not really know what an optimal vitamin D level is? What's Do you know what the story is behind that? Yeah, look um- – the, the the low levels of vitamin D um, now now when when I'm talking low levels of vitamin D I'm talking below 25 nanomoles per liter which which is a very uh, conservative in some people's uh, opinion but but it's based on years of work around bone health we know that people who have less than 25 nanomoles per liter of of vitamin D or 25 hydroxy vitamin D um, tend to have their parathyroid hormone, PTH, increased, uh, and it means that they're, they're struggling to get calcium into their bones. So I'm looking at it purely from a calcemic point of view. Um, and um, the test, um, certainly um, prior to that, it was just unavailable. Vitamin D testing was was a very specialised field that required um, very fancy equipment and took a lot of time and effort to do. So it wasn't routine pathology that was occurring at that stage. So I don't think it's got anything to do with the test. What I do seem to, to, to believe what is going on is that we have a large proportion of our population who don't go outside a, a great deal, either due to their age, they're frail, they're elderly, they're living in nursing homes or they're hospitalised or, or people who are incarcerated uh, or, or uh, in other areas where they just don't have sun exposure. But also people are heeding those warnings 
um, with some protection. Um, but I don't think that's actually causing this low vitamin D. The low vitamin, because of the sunscreen effect that we saw, where people who wore sunscreen had the highest levels of D, I think it's got to do with behaviour where people are actually spending more time indoors, causing us to have these vitamin D deficiencies. So we have more people spending more time inside, mm -hmm. which is probably happening for most people in Australia this year at least, um, if they take a vitamin D supplement, this is probably going to sound like a really silly question, but will that then take the place of the sun? Is it just vitamin D that we need to be looking at when it comes to sun exposure or are there other reasons why we need to be in the sun? So it... it uh just getting to the, – the, there's a two-part answer to that question and I'll go straight to the question of does the body, you know, discriminate between oral vitamin D that you can get in over-the-counter supplements and sun-derived vitamin D? The answer is no. It's it, The body recognises it exactly the same way. The only difference is that when you ingest vitamin D orally, the feedback pathway for um, overproduction that, that occurs in the skin is not present. So there's other um, pathways within the body that um, are engaged if high doses are, are received. But within the bloodstream, um, the difference between uh, oral vitamin D and um, sun-derived vitamin D is indistinguishable. It's the same biochemical compound. So there's absolutely no difference. Um, as far as the second part to your question, thinking about is there other effects within sunlight beyond vitamin D? Well, well, that's the million-dollar question, and we're not sure. I think that there's intriguing, intriguing research that's happening in the multiple sclerosis space, and that is um, for many, many years um, there has been known to be a relationship between the location of residence, that is people who live in less sunny environments, are typically at much greater, I'm talking much, much greater uh, by order of a couple of, of uh, times, greater at risk of developing MS than those living in more sunnier climates. And this, this happens in uh, in both the northern and southern hemisphere, this trend of living in less sunny climates, the higher the risk for MS. So there has been some vitamin D trials occurring in that space, looking at whether vitamin D supplements can actually um, uh, help with, with MS demyelination events. And there certainly does seem to be some evidence around that. However, it doesn't seem to be um, vitamin D doesn't seem to be involved in protection for the initial diagnosis of MS. So there might be other factors at play. Now, that doesn't mean that the vitamin D isn't involved in, in MS and its progression and so on. There's certainly a whole body of research around that, and there are some really good work that's being conducted here in Australia on that topic, and that's a topic for another conversation. But, um, but certainly... The, 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 uh, there are researchers in that MS vitamin D space suggesting that, hey, look, there possibly is something else within the sunlight spectrum that could be causing this. And, and, and this is what we, we don't know because when we go out in the sun, we're exposed to polychromatic light, many wavelengths from the ultra short wavelength ultraviolet which is which sits against the visible part of the spectrum that our eyes see, and then we have the infrared part of the spectrum, which which extends into much longer wavelengths. Now, all of these wavelengths of light actually penetrate our skin, and our our melatonin and our our diurnal rhythm is certainly dictated by the visible part of the spectrum and receptors in the back of the eye that, that detects visible light and mel melatonin production is certainly um, related to, to sunlight exposure. So when we're talking about the health effects of sunlight and human disease, 
we can certainly pull apart the fact that ultraviolet radiation is is 100% known to be a grade one carcinogen for skin cancer. We also 100% know that vitamin D is produced exclusively by the UVB part of the UV spectrum, which is a very short wavelength. But then all of these other effects that we're just starting to understand now could have other parts of the spectrum involved. And I guess this is perhaps a, 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 a caution in, in pulling out uh, a particular part of the spectrum when the reality is when you and I go out and walk to the shops, we're exposed to many wavelengths of light, not just one. So it could mean in the future that that some of these uh, results may be um, collinear and it could be teased out that there could be other if effects of other parts of the of the um, the solar spectrum spectrum that we're just not quite aware of yet. It's interesting that you bring that point up, actually, because in my clinic for many years, I was using um, low-level laser therapy, mm -hmm. and that uses wavelengths in the near-infrared uh, spectrum. So 904 nanometers would be a common wavelength we'd use, 610 nanometers. There's a lot of evidence out there to show beneficial effects depending on the um, wavelength of light being used. Mm -hmm. So it makes me wonder if those wavelengths uh, are something that we're being exposed to from the sun when we're outside, is that then having a, a beneficial effect on our body and we just haven't, as you said, identified that yet? Yeah, and, and I think that that's what makes the field of photochemistry and photobiology um, so interesting and how it can relate back to human health. Uh, we certainly have evolved to be creatures that live in an environment that it has exposure to the sun, um, we were certainly never expected to live much beyond 30. So uh, the risk of, of skin cancers and so on um, perhaps weren't as, as a higher evolutionary priority as, as other effects that sunlight might give. So this whole balancing situation, I think, is an extraordinarily interesting piece of work that is going to take many shoulders to the wheel to figure out. And at the same time, I think that there's a responsibility that we really need to keep the public informed of, of how the science is evolving and how we need to rely on what the science is telling us now. And that is, we know that in general, the sun has more harm than good. However, we can enjoy the sun safely if we use our, our sun protection as recommended by the, the Cancer Council because I think that a worst-case scenario is people could self-medicate with the sun uh, in order to gain health benefits but actually trade one of those benefits off with, with harms. And I think at the moment the jury is definitely in the more harm than, than beneficial uh, uh, um, corner. So we, we need to be quite prudent with the way that, that we proceed forward. But at the same time, we need to be um, ob observant and willing to accept that there, there are probably other parts of the spectrum, as you say, this 900-odd this nanometer, and, and I'm sure there's others that, that do impact other parts of our potentially our health as humans, because, you know, the longer the wavelength of light, the deeper that it actually penetrates within human skin. So UV only penetrates at the very deepest down to the dermal capillary layer. UVB only goes to the top keratinocyte layer, um, whereas visible and infrared can penetrate right down the muscle tissue. So, you know, there's a whole lot of work needs to be done. There are people starting to look at this, and I think that it's going to be a very exciting ride over the next 20 or so years once we start teasing out all of these effects because, as I said before, we are a creature of, of one with our environment. And um, what are we missing out by uh, potentially changing our behaviour patterns, behaviour exposure patterns uh, to time in the sun? So... Uh, this is something that certainly I, I think is going to drive our research forward. 
sounds like a really complicated field and here I was just expecting to uh, for you to give me the answer straight away. So I think the answer is clear around our understanding on, on UVB. We know, uh, U, uh, sorry, UV and skin cancer and vitamin D. I, I think the evidence is really clear there. What, what, what's up, up for grabs is we don't know about the other health effects of light and how what sort of role they, they play in disease and not only what role but what size of the role. Do they work in combination with UV? Uh, is there a good versus bad balance that's happening? Um, how does it all pan out? So it's, it's, a, it's a very complex question but I think at the same time we can rest assured that the science is clear around skin cancer risk and eye uh, eye disease risk uh, and also um, the vitamin D uh, UV exposure um, relationship. The rest, I think, is is certainly um, questions that we need to answer. So, yeah, it sounds like a much more complicated uh, area than I had actually ever thought of. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. One thing I was going to ask you as well was in regards to this vitamin D deficiency that we are observing, Mm -hmm. are there other factors that could be affecting vitamin D levels in people? So I have read some papers where there are people who have um, inflammation in their body systemically Mm -hmm. uh, and even people who are obese, for example, they've been shown to have lower levels of uh, serum vitamin D. So could it be that the uh, high levels of overweight and obesity that we're seeing in Australia, Mm -hmm. could that somehow be correlated to the uh, vitamin D deficiency that we're observing? Oh, absolutely. Because um, uh, vitamin D is, um, well, first of all, biochemically, it's actually a secosteroid. So it's, it was, there's a very interesting story about how it was called a vitamin, but essentially it was just called a vitamin because the fellow who, who, who discovered it was discovering other vitamins at the time. But we, we now know that structurally and functionally, it's actually a secosteroid. It's a steroid. So <clears throat> it, it's produced in a remote location and works on tissues at a different location, a, a hormone. So... Um, but vitamin D, um, or the secosteroid 25-hydroxy-D, if we want to be technical, uh, is, um, is fat-soluble. So adipose tissue tends to sequander any excess vitamin D. So that could pose a bit of a problem because within our bloodstream, we have three different forms of vitamin D circulating. We've got the cholecalciferol, which is the vitamin D downstream product of what's produced in the skin or what you take orally in an over-the-counter supplement. So cholecalciferol. Secondly, um, once cholecalciferol enters the bloodstream after being produced in the skin or ingested, it goes to the liver where it's hydroxylated by one alpha hydroxylase enzyme, enzyme into 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is when you ask for a blood test for vitamin D, that is the, the, the actual measure that you're measuring. Now, that is not the hormonal form of vitamin D because that 25-hydroxy D, after it gets hydroxylated in the liver, it then goes back into the bloodstream and goes to the kidneys where it is produced, uh, it's converted into 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, which is the active hormonal version. So uh, adipose tissue, fat tissue, can actually um, retain both the inactive and the active forms of vitamin D. Uh, And uh, so people who are overweight and obese tend to have lower vitamin D levels um, and um, with supplementation, they can raise their levels, but it tends to plateau at a certain point. So 
uh, overweight and obesity is certainly a, an area of exploration. I know in North America, there's a lot of research looking at that relationship between uh, uh, adipose tissue, uh, overweight obesity, and uh, vitamin D for bone health. And and I think the question uh, is certainly a valid one. As far as chronic inflammation, yes, uh, there's certainly a relationship between people who are who have chronic inflammation and lower 25-hydroxy-D. Again, it, it, it could be due to liver function as far as the, um, the enzyme that produces the uh, 25-hydroxy-D could be uh, not as effective because of the inflammation. Again, it would be a case-by-case basis. But all of these factors certainly do, do uh, when we look at the, the statistical models that we produce to look at predictors for vitamin D status, we do have to include these factors certainly in our models, and they are big drivers of vitamin D status. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I think you've answered that question really well. Um, there's a couple of other questions that I want to see if we can get through uh, before we come to the end today. It's gone by so quickly. Um, in regards to things like osteoporosis and vitamin D, do people need to supplement with vitamin D to get the beneficial effect or can they get that effect through sensible sun exposure? Uh, you know, is it necessary for the older population in Australia to be taking a vitamin D supplement every day? Well, I guess, you know, um, I guess the best advice for, for this should come from the individual's uh, medical care team. However, if, if we were to generalise um, and put people into categories, we know that older people tend to spend less time outdoors exercising just because of the, the frailty and other, other comorbidities that they might be, be suffering. So they tend to spend more time outdoors. Some even tend to be more bedridden than others. So you in general, the elderly population, I'm talking quite elderly here, the quite elderly population tend to be uh, more indoor bound. Uh, the older population who are active, um, that's a different story that we can cover a little bit later on. But those who are uh, certainly indoors and bed bound, uh, certainly you know, vitamin D supplementation, uh, if, if deemed appropriate by the uh, treating medical team, would be appropriate because they're just not getting the sunlight exposure. Um, with those active uh, seniors who are getting sun exposure, uh, the vitamin D demands as you age, uh, certainly for bone health, does increase. And there is a recommendation that uh, um, you know supplementation does occur. And I guess, that again, that, that is a question for the medical team to evaluate on an individual basis because, um, you know, even though uh, some has purported that higher vitamin D levels are uh, are important, um, we do need to be aware that there is vitamin D toxicity. You know, and this is a um, a secosteroid we're talking about. So care needs to be taken, and, and other comorbidities need to be taken into consideration as well, such as diabetes and and as we mentioned before about obesity and overweight. <clears throat> But I think that in general, uh, people with, with a lower sun exposure, those people who've had melanomas and other skin cancers who are, you know, trying to uh, um, avoid sun exposure certainly would, uh, you know, if their physicians do recommend uh, the uh, taking of oral vitamin D, it certainly, in, in my opinion, would, would uh, be, be a wise move. You've mentioned a few times that vitamin D is not, in fact, a vitamin, which is really interesting, and it's a secosteroid. So I guess with any other hormone that we would supplement with or, or take via prescription, there's safety issues mm -hmm. with any of those hormones. So is it the same with vitamin D? Is there something that we need to be cautious about, or is it just the fact that we could 
get toxicity from taking too much? Well, I think that that's a terrific, terrific question. And remember, um, I mentioned before about the pathway of vitamin D. Over-the-counter supplements are a, a, a pre-hormone. It's a pro-hormone. So it's not actually in a hormonal uh, active form. So it doesn't come under that particular set of legislation and guidelines. Um, whereas, um, you know, if, if you were to prescribe someone testosterone, obviously there's a, there's a whole set of uh, procedures that need to be followed and safety and efficacy and so on that needs to be followed with that because you're administering a hormone. But I think that being said, I think the, the do no harm approach is why I keep recommending that anyone who's thinking about getting on vitamin D supplements, who's talking about getting on vitamin D supplements, should actually talk to their medical care team because, you know, we are dealing with downstream a psychosteroid and what effect it might have on your overall health profile, I think is a really important conversation that needs to be had on an individual basis because each person is different, each each person's requirements are different. And, and as I mentioned before, the other comorbidities can actually seriously impact the, the importance of it. Um, and, you know, thinking, you know, quite laterally, those with chronic kidney disease, those with with liver disease, all of these factors, I think, really do need to be taken into account and a conversation should be had with, with uh, medical professionals, um, making sure that uh, when you take your vitamin D, it's done in a, in a safe and effective dose. Uh, and, and generally, uh, you oh. know, the cases of toxicity are very, very rare and indeed, uh, there, there has been very few cases of it, but I think this is an important case of uh, uh, more is not necessarily better because the body has got a wonderful mechanism to actually degrade excessive vitamin D within the body, both the hormonal form and also the pre-hormonal form and also the form that's produced in the skin. So there's a lot of safety mechanisms there. Um, however, for those people with other comorbidities, those safety mechanisms may be compromised due to the other disease state. So I think uh, conversations need to be had just to make sure that everything's uh, safe and efficient in moving forward. Yeah, it's a fantastic point that you bring up. I think a lot of people never consider the potential of risk when they go down to their local pharmacy and pick up one of these bottles and they just start taking it. I think what you've raised there for people to actually consult with their doctor or their primary healthcare practitioner around whether or not it's suitable for their individual circumstances is really important. So we just, yeah, we can't have that blanket, blanket statement, no. uh, can we, that no, everyone I, needs to be taking vitamin D. And, and I think that's that's where, you know, my, my job, you know, looking at population health and the epidemiology of it, balancing that out with the individual need because on a population level yes there's about a third of the australian population is vitamin d deficient and they probably could do with taking a vitamin d supplement but on an individual level we need to make sure that they do do no harm so you know because it's it's such a potent anti-inflammatory because it's such a potent you know calcium metabolizer uh, within the body you know it, it just makes common sense to to as you say chat to your team whether that be your GP your primary care provider your allied health team uh, whatever team medical team you have around you to provide you that support and guidance to ensure you know the, the correct path is 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 given because uh you know, uh, you don't want to become hypercalcemic and uh, as a result of excessive vitamin D. One thing I have noticed is that there are so many different vitamin D products out in the market. There's literally hundreds available in Australia. I'm not sure if you know, are there any that are better than others? Is there anything that we should look at? in particular for a good vitamin D supplement if we have to take it? Uh, look, that, to my understanding, uh, they have to re reach a certain level of government uh, 
approval to, to be you know, allowed to be sold in Australian pharmacies. So the level from my, my perspective, um, you know, as long as they have the stamp of approval from, from the, the government, uh, which most can check on, on the bottle for that, um, everything is, is fine. So I, 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 I can't suggest that there is one brand better than the other because I don't believe there is. I think that, you know, this is about what fits the consumer and what fits what the practitioner thinks is best for the, the patient in this particular case. So um, I, I think follow the guidance of your healthcare team and, and uh, just check that uh, the label has the uh, stamp of approval of a, of, of a quality organisation behind it. And with sun exposure, you can get up to, I think your body can generate the equivalent to like 25,000 international units per day from a, a decent dose of sun. Mm. So does that mean we need to be taking, if we're avoiding the sun, the equivalent of 25,000 international units of vitamin D to be getting effects or at the general doses where most people would take, say, a thousand international units be sufficient? Yeah, I think this is a rabbit hole that uh, that we might might head down. Uh, it's it's a very that is a very very complex question, and there's many many components to it. We're not quite the the, the amount of twenty five thousand international units. It's really hard to quantify. Um, as far as is that really what we get from a dose of sunlight exposure? If we're talking about a maintenance dose of keeping people above 50 nanomoles per litre per liter of 25-hydroxy-D, which is a very conservative, you know, very, you know, internationally um, respected level of, 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 um, of vitamin D status. If we want to keep people above that, um, certainly just incidental sun exposure, so minutes per day, uh, of unintentional sun exposure, you know, walking to the car, catching the bus, th those sorts of activities is fine. Um, and um, we do know that oral supplementation of up to a 1,000 international units a day um, will, will maintain people's vitamin D above that level as well. I think the question is when people are vitamin D deficient, what is the most that is below 25 nanomoles per litre or even if some clinicians want to say below 50 nanomoles per litre, what is the most efficient way to get these, these people up to that level? And I guess that that's really where the specialists come into play, where the endocrinologists, where the GPs with a good understanding in this area can really help the patients understand that because what we don't want people to do is take off their shirt, sit in the backyard for four hours and end up with a sunburn, which ratchets up their risk of melanoma significantly, yet maybe not provide the benefit that they think they might get. Whereas under supervised medical care uh, and with a regime that's appropriate for the individual and, and their, their blood test for vitamin D, where their starting point is at, I think there's a far more effective way on an individual level to, to figure out um, what dosing and what, what scheme is best because it, it is a slippery slope. You know, again, you know, I like the fact that, that it resonated with you that this is a, a secosteroid. This is downstream. This is quite a, a, you know, important hormone within the body and we need to be really conscious of that. So uh, thinking about this, I think this is definitely a, a, a question best left for the uh, professionals on a one-by-one -one basis with the patient. Absolutely. And I know we can't give out uh, into individualized advice and that that's definitely not what we're doing in this yeah, circumstance. So right. yeah, we but, need to make that clear for people. Yeah, too. absolutely. And I think it comes back to, you know, how do we empower people to, 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 to have these conversations? And I think it comes down to, you know, knowing what their individual's vitamin D level is, um, asking the, their, their medical team about what target range they need to be looking at and how, and then thirdly, asking questions around how 
the other illnesses and diseases that that I currently have or, or don't have, how does that impact where I need to be and and how I need to get there and what's their recommendation on doing that? So I think, you know, having having that information will really give patients and uh, also other other people within the medical space, you know, confidence in moving forward. It's a really good point. Um, you also mentioned the cutoff point for deficiency is about 50 nanomoles per litre. Are there any um, cutoff points towards the higher end? So where would we see toxicity start to begin? Yeah, well, um, you know, we're certainly talking, um, you know, well into the the couple of hundreds uh, where you'll find toxicity starting to kick in. And that that tends to happen um, only through oral supplementation, um, and um, and that is uh, um, because the body's breakdown mechanism to actually degrade vitamin D or 25-hydroxy-D is diminished when bolus doses are given uh, at that sort of level. But as I said, th- these cases are extraordinarily rare, um, but certainly those individuals at the higher end of the range within the, the you know, couple of hundreds and indeed in in my research the highest level i've ever seen is about 180 185 nanomoles per liter uh whereas the average you know the eyeball average for for, for people in in brisbane is is around about uh, 50 to 75 and in in places like sydney and canberra it, it's a it's about the same 50 to 75 but in hobart a little bit lower but these these really high values are extraordinarily rare, um, and um, but they, they are very serious when they occur because, as I said, hypercalcemia uh, can occur, and uh, turning you know a patient uh, into a statue from the inside out um, is not not really wise. So the, these super high um, vitamin D levels are very rare, but when they do occur, they're very serious. Is there any ground in the middle from the lower cutoff point of 15 animals to the toxicity level? If you're trying to work out, say, an optimal level of vitamin D from the epidemiological studies, mm-hmm. is there like the lowest reduction in osteoporosis or cancer or depression or something like that? At a specific range of vitamin D, or is that still an unknown? The, the- Certainly, that that is a moving target at the moment, but it seems to be anything above fifty nanomoles is really where you want to be for most health benefits. Anything hugely above that, so if if you're well into the, over a hundred nanomoles per liter, there tends to be no additional benefit. So it, it's not definitive at the moment. Kind of like our understanding of what other factors within sunlight are important for uh, for our health this this whole optimum range is is quite unknown now i do need to say with all of this you know we're talking about the optimum range of the uh, pre-hormone 25-hydroxy-D. It's not the actual hormonal form that we're measuring. So this 50 nanomoles per litre is still not biologically active. We need to think of it like a reservoir, like a dam. You know, that's how much of vitamin D we're holding in our dam at the moment within our circulatory system. And what effect does that potential energy, if we can think of it as a dam or a reservoir, you know, what does that potential energy, if we can think of it that way, what does that do to our health? You know, is is it a linear relationship? Probably not. Uh, and you know, the other fundamental question is: Should we be measuring the hormonal form of vitamin D? Now, the hormonal form of vitamin D, we do have a an assay that we can measure it quickly and effectively. It's it's a it's very expensive, but what does it tell us? Because it's a very short half-life. So um, the half-life describes how long it takes for half of the molecule to disappear in, in the body. Uh, and it's anywhere from four to six hours for, for uh, 1,25-hydroxy-D, the hormonal form of vitamin D. So it's a very short measured, um, short half-life 
molecule, yet 25-hydroxy-D, it's about two to four weeks of half-life in our circuitry system. So it's a little bit more stable in in that terms. But I mentioned before that that the hormonal form of vitamin D is produced in our kidneys, which which is true, and that's a very classical model. But what we have found, and I think this is a really interesting point, is that in most tissues in the body, in most tissues, and including cancer cells, we have found and discovered, not we, not not me, but the the royal we, the, the scientific community, have found vitamin D receptors on those particular cells. And these receptors are nuclear receptors, which actually take 25 hydroxy D, that that stuff that we measure, the stuff that we get our report back, you know, 50 nanomoles per litre, it takes that 25 hydroxy D into the cell and it can make the active hormonal form within that cell, independently of the kidneys. So we can actually get this system working within a cell to make an action hormonally at that cell, which is has been known for, for a number of years, and we're slowly getting our understanding of what that means. So although we're not measuring the hormonal form of vitamin D, we're not sure what an optimal range is, what impact does that have, that 25-hydroxy-D level, what impact does that have on a cellular level where it might be important, for example, uh, in prostate cancer cells, in breast cancer cells? We're not quite sure on how that all translates and is it important epidemiologically and also biologically in, in the bigger scheme of things. So there's many questions that we don't know yet. So we tend to fall back when we're talking about vitamin D on our understanding around the calcium bone health relationship, which is bangs around that 50 to 75 nanomoles per litre mark for 25-hydroxy-D is an optimum level for most folk. So are you saying that vitamin D can go into a cancer cell and get activated into the active form and it may have an either beneficial or deleterious effect? We just don't know. It, it does that to cancer cells, some cancer cells, breast cancer, prostate cancer. Uh, it does it with most cells within the body. There's a vitamin D receptor. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, and in fact, there's even a vitamin D receptor in melanoma cells. Let me repeat that. There's vitamin D receptors in melanoma cells. So we've just finished a large project funded by the US Department of Defense cancer research program, looking at the relationship between vitamin D and melanoma um, and whether vitamin D can actually um, help stop people progress to more advanced forms of, of cancer. So this is a, is, is a, is a field of work that, that it's, there's many components to it. We, we're talking about exposure to sunlight and how uh, on a population level, how it's a a complex message, but at the same time, a simple one. Then we have the biology of, of, around vitamin D and how it's a, 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 a secosteroid and it's a hormone and, and, and how, does it, how does that impact our health? And then we've got the, the knowledge that on a cellular level, we've got vitamin D, which is produced from the sun, can then actually be regulated within the cell through a nuclear receptor to make the active form of vitamin D. It's an incredibly... I think wonderful insight into how we're intrinsically connected to our environment and how little we know about the relationship between our environment and the downstream impact on our health. And I think that's what excites me. That's what gets me up every day and working in this area and understanding what's going on because we seem to, through our development as an advanced um, society around the world, perhaps disconnected a bit too much from our environment and understanding the role that the environment plays in our health and how there might be subtle messages missed in, in this whole scheme of things. What you said there really resonates with me that we may be missing something in our environment that uh, we just don't know of yet. And 
obviously the research that you're doing there is going to contribute significantly to better understanding those unknowns. My final question for you today, Professor Kimlin, is if there was one thing in all of your research or in this field that you could have an answer to today, what would that one thing be? Uh, We talked about it before. I, I think most people want to know, tell me, how much time should I be out in the sun for for vitamin D and how do I protect myself? From skin cancer, what what do I need to do? And th- and that is really the most complex question out there because we we don't understand exactly on an individual level what we need to make vitamin D effectively, but balancing out the risk of skin cancer. What is it? You know, are we best to supplement people? Are we best, you know, all of these factors are intertwined and and, and that is the, the resounding question that, that I get asked the most. How do we, how much time can we spend in the sun for vitamin D to improve my health but also not get skin cancer? Is there such a thing? Um, and that is, I think, the million-dollar question because, you know, we're all different colours and tones of skin colour. We've all we all live in different environments. We all have different genetic backgrounds. So all of these factors make to a very complex story. That I think once we unlock that particular understanding, we can then start to think about the role of personalized medicine in these downstream effects that we know that the vitamin D is involved with potentially. Uh, regulating some cancer cells. We know it's involved in regulating calcium homeostasis within the bloodstream. We know that sunlight might have some other beneficial effects beyond vitamin D for multiple sclerosis. What is that? Well, if we don't understand this fundamental question, we're never going to understand these more complex questions down the line. So um, that to me would be my wish. I really hope that we can find an answer. Mm. because that would help so many people, uh, not only in Australia but around the world, once we find out what that optimal safe dose is. That's right. Is there such a thing or, or is it just a myth? Are we chasing a chasing a unicorn, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, it would be really interesting to see what your research uh, uncovers over the, the coming years. Mm. Um, just in the final minutes of the podcast today, Professor Kimlin, is there anything you would like to leave the listeners with? Any uh, particular message um, that you think might be of benefit to them? Look, I, I think, you know, without sounding like a broken record, I think that it's really important to trust the science that's there now. We know that that's the sun is the main risk factor for melanoma and other skin cancers and sun-related eye disorders. So we need to really not change the messaging on that when we're talking about the possible beneficial effects of vitamin D, which we're still trying to unpack those beneficial effects. I think that we can rest assured that, you know, uh, sensible sun safety using the the Cancer Council recommendations on protecting your, your skin in five ways is actually okay because those people who do that use sunscreen tend to have high vitamin D levels. So you're getting a win-win benefit. I think that, uh, you know, until we know more about this complex field, we just need to rely on what we know now uh, and uh, strap in for the ride because I think it's going to be an interesting next 10 or so years when we start finding out these relationships that are far more complex. Professor Kimlin, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. I know that someone in your position has uh, obviously got a lot going on and it really means a lot to me. Uh, and I'm sure the listeners are also very appreciative of you taking this time and, and providing your knowledge and expertise or sharing your knowledge and expertise with everybody. So I would like to say um, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Daniel. I, and I appreciate the chance to have a chat. It's been wonderful.
Professor, before you go, if there are any um, health professionals that are listening to this today and they would like to find out more about the research that you're doing or may want to um, get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Would it be via LinkedIn or yeah, through the university website? Yep, uh, via LinkedIn is great. Uh, or, or you can Google search my name and all my email addresses will pop up there. Uh, but all of those methods are great and I'm more than happy to chat to people uh, if they need more information. That's not a problem. Thank you so much, Professor Kimlin. Uh, good luck with all of your research. And I'm really interested to see what uh, some of the results are with the trials that you're currently conducting are uh, as they're published in the coming months and years. So I'll definitely stay in contact with you and uh, be very interested to see uh, your results. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Sounds great. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.